Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Uh, Again, we've been walking through a little series. I say little, it's getting bigger and bigger, but uh, a series on the Christian mindset and just how is a Christian supposed to think in this day and age? And, and we've been walking through specifically Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 9. I just want to start with reading it uh, this morning just so it's fresh upon our minds. Uh, so here's what Paul writes in Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there is anything virtuous, if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, we've been walking through <clears throat> these first couple of verses, and uh, we're still in verse 6. <laughs> which, yeah, it is what it is. I think it's funny. Uh, but again, in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. And when are we to be rejoicing? Well, he says, always. And in case we miss the emphasis, he says, Again, let me tell you, rejoice. Again, it's not based on circumstance or situation. Every moment of every day, they're supposed to be rejoicing. And that's probably a good reminder for this week, (laughs) (laughs) that we need to be rejoicing. Uh, Verse 5, let everyone come to know your gentleness. And again, I'm not going to unpack that again, but gentleness is probably not what you're thinking it is. There's a whole undercurrent uh, of this reality of gentleness. And then Paul makes this transitionary statement. He says, the Lord is at hand. And then he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And we were beginning to look at this idea of this prayer, supplication, making your requests known to God uh, in the last session. Again, Paul setting up a contrast in verse 6. He says, in nothing be anxious, in everything be prayerful. And you recognize you cannot do both of those at the same time. It it seems like there's a a pressing. I'm either going to live in anxiety and fear and worry, or I'm going to live in prayer and live in this reality of communion and intimacy and the the reality of Jesus Christ through his word. And uh, last week we were walking through this idea that Paul uses these three synonyms uh, for this idea of prayer. He uses the word prayer. He uses the word supplication. And then he uses the word make requests. And again, all three of those words are words for prayer. So then my question was, what on earth is Paul trying to tell us? Is he just repeating himself over and over and over again? And again, I think the simple uh, simple understanding is that he's saying, 
in all times, in all ways, no matter how you pray, whatever you pray, pray. So again, I think the emphasis is just on this idea of praying. But we sort of were unpacking last week this idea that the word prayer is more of like this umbrella statement for prayer in Scripture, uh, where it's you know, this idea of, hey, I'm to take, my, take uh, this, this communion, this intimacy, this, this uh, confidence that I have in Jesus Christ, and I am to be spending time with him. I am to, to make my request known to him. But it's that, that prayer word seems to be the big picture uh, idea or big umbrella for prayer. Well, then what am I doing in the middle of this big umbrella called prayer? Oh, I'm making supplication. So I'm bringing these needs of myself and others to God in prayer. And then what am I doing in supplication? I'm making requests. So it seems like there is a kind of a tone or a flow where he's getting more and more specific. The problem with that, though, is that uh, Paul uses the word prayer and supplication interchangeably all through his epistles. <laughs> so what's, what's the difference? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> in short, it's just... So again, I think if you look at the big picture, it seems like he's going from big idea of prayer into supplication down to make requests. And this whole thing is to be done with Thanksgiving. And yet, truth be told, most scholars are divided. They, they have no idea either what Paul's trying to do in this passage other than say, hey, you are to be praying. And it's like he's grabbing all these different words for prayer to say, be praying. Uh, last week, <clears throat> I mentioned that what I wanted to do today is I wanted to take this idea in that first word, prayer, and uh, I want to kind of unpack it a little bit more. How that word, prayer, it's the Greek word prosuke, and that word, again, it's this idea of prayer or the place of prayer or to speak to God. It's to ask God for something. Uh, one scholar defined it as uh, it's the believer's approach to God. And uh, again, if you want... Uh, I found this quote, which may be, may be helpful, for, helpful for us in terms of the difference between these words. But one scholar said it this way, prayer, the big word prayer, describes a believer's approach to God. Petition or supplication emphasizes requesting an answer to a specific need. Thanksgiving is the attitude of heart which should always accompany one's prayer. And the requests speak of the definite and specific things asked for. And if that helps you, then so be it. If not, then just smile and nod like everyone else is doing, uh, at least in the scholar books. It's just like, yes, pray. <laughs> you know? I found it interesting, though, that this word prosuke, the first word for prayer in, in our passage, one of the ways that word is used, it's, it's typically used as prayer, supplication, making a request known to God. It, it is that idea. But one of the ways this word is used is as the place of prayer. So not so much the activity of praying, or making prayers, uh, it's also using this idea of it's the location of prayer. And as I was just pondering this idea of what Paul is saying here, isn't it interesting that he's saying there's nothing in your life that should cause anxiety or fear or worry or trepidation, but everything in your life should be pushing you to this reality of prayer. So I have an issue in my life, I have a circumstance, good things, bad things, ugly things, but all things should be driving me to Jesus. So when good things happen in my life, what should I do? Oh, I should take that to him in prayer. Jesus, you're so good. Thank you. Thank you for this. Hey, if bad things happen in my life, what should the bad things do? That should drive me to Jesus. That I don't live in the fear and the anxiety. It's just, Lord, here's, here's my problem. So you're going to have to get involved. And Lord, I, I don't want to just handle this on my own. So could you somehow enable me to do that which I need to do? Uh, Lord, there's an election coming up. 
And Lord, I can't, I can't force anything. So, I mean, hey, I can vote. But ultimately, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to press and move this thing and guard and protect this process. And you're going to have to stir and change the hearts of kings and, and all this kind of stuff. So, Lord, I am bringing this request to you. So whether it's good or bad or ugly, everything should be driving us to Jesus. And wouldn't it be neat if everything in your life just caused us to delight ourselves in Jesus and be pressed to Jesus? And, and I think I gave the illustration last week. But uh, I love this thought of, of here is God and here is me. If anything gets between the two of us, it's going to put pressure and drive us away. But what if I'm so tight with Jesus that when pressures come, there's actually no space between me and him that all the pressure is coming from the outside, which only causes me to be driven toward Jesus, which means my intimacy, my relationship just increases and deepens. And I want that. I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I want that. So that whatever comes in my, thank you, whatever comes, whatever comes in our lives, that we're just pressed to Jesus. But then again, I find it interesting that it's also a place of prayer. Now, in context, I don't think that's what Paul is saying, that we are places of prayer. But we are places of prayer. And wouldn't it be neat, I was playing with that language last week of, what if we were an island of tranquility amidst the seas of turmoil in our world? What if we were these little havens of prayer that as we were living out in our world, we just went out into our whatever our circumstances, our issues, our people, our country, or whatever. And we actually became places of rejoicing, a place of prayer, a place of thanksgiving, a place of rest, a place of calm. That somehow as people kind of bumped into us, they're just like, I don't know what this is, but I want whatever it is that you have. I, ah, wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, and I could use a great example of that because Sandy lately has been, I know that Sandy hates me poking at her, but Sandy is like, over this last year, has gone to a whole nother level with Jesus. And it's just like, I keep bumping into Sandy or hear, hear Sandy praying. And I'm like, okay, whatever it is that she's like poking at, I want that. Like last night, I don't know if you guys noticed, but during our prayer time, just Sandy's heart in, in prayer. I'm like, Lord, I need that. Whatever that is, just that intimacy and that richness and that longing and petition. So I'm bragging on you, but uh, but it is, it's, a, it's, it's that island of tranquility amidst the seas of turmoil idea. That it's like I bump into Sandy, and I'm like, I want whatever Sandy has. But wouldn't that be neat if we were that, all of us were that in our world today? Uh, that idea of the place of prayer, let me give you the few passages where that idea shows up. And I want to unpack this idea because it's just a neat idea in my mind. Uh, in Acts chapter 16... Verses 13 and 16, uh, Paul's on his missionary journey. He comes to this new city called Philippi, where he eventually is going to write this book of Philippians. But it says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. That's the same word. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And of course, there was this great movement. And then in verse 16, uh, there was this demon-possessed girl who showed up at this place of prayer thing. And uh, we're not going to get into all that. But, but isn't it interesting that there is this location called the place of prayer, where they just presumed people were going to gather together on the Sabbath day as Jews and pray. Uh, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, 
in Luke chapter 19, verse 46, it's, it's, it's a repeated statement. But in the Matthew's account and in Luke's account, it says, He said to them, It is written, right? Jesus comes into the temple and he's looking at all the stuff that's going on in the temple. And of course, he throws out the money changers and he's flipping over tables and he's having a heyday. And he's looking at this whole scene and Jesus makes the statement, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And it's that word. So what was the temple supposed to be? The temple was not supposed to be a marketplace. The temple was a place of prayer. And then I love, <clears throat> I love what Mark does in Mark eleven seventeen. He expands that idea as he's quoting Jesus. And Jesus, it is recorded saying, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so you get this idea that the temple was supposed to be a place, it's a location of prayer, and not just a place of prayer for the Jews. It was actually supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations. Now, I know you all know this, uh, but we're still going to walk through this. <laughs> but we have become the temple, which again is blasph blasphemy in the mind of a Jew. So to call anybody a temple, the most holy place on planet earth, would be blasphemy. To look at Gentiles, that's even more blasphemous. Because as we keep walking through in the Ephesians study, uh, the Jews did not like, did not like the Gentiles. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <clears throat> but we become the temple. In uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul asks the question, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So just as the Spirit of God dwelt down in the physical temple in Jerusalem, so now we have become the dwelling places of God. Uh, a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, he again asks the question, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, that we have become the temple. So when you come back into this idea that here is Jesus, he goes into the temple and he sees what is going on and it is not a house of prayer, he begins to be disturbed. I love John's account of that whole thing. Uh, it seems like Jesus went to the temple two times and threw over the money changer things. Uh, in John's account, it, it puts the scenario toward the beginning of his ministry during Passover. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, it's right before the crucifixion scene, right during that triumphal entry stuff. And so it seems like, likely, there were two different occasions where Jesus is throwing over the money changer things, as if they didn't get it the first time. He's like, let me remind you. <laughs> you know? but, but at the earlier part of his ministry, in John's account, in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, let me give you John's account of what Jesus did in terms of his zeal and his passion for his house, which again is supposed to be a house of prayer. And in John 2, verse 13, it begins by saying, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, which just delights me. Because obviously Jesus is ticked off by what he sees. And then he's like, you know what, I need to do something about this. So then what does he do? He makes a whip. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. As if he had time. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to deal with this properly, and I need a whip. So I just, I just, that just delights me. Uh, and making a whip of cords, 
he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So you got to get this idea that we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus was zealous and jealously guarded over his father's house physically, you realize he's going to be just as zealous and jealously guarded over his spiritual dwelling called us. So we have become a place of prayer. In other words, our lives are to be a place of prayer. So again, as we're looking at our passage in Philippians 4, Paul says, hey, there is nothing in your life that should be causing anxiety. There should be no reason for fear, worry, anxiety, or trepidation. Everything in your life should be driving you to Jesus so that your life becomes a place of prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, making your requests known to God. That everything is stirring and causing this intimacy, this request, this supplication, this position of prayer. So again, whether it's good or bad or ugly, everything should be driving me to Jesus. And what would it look like if our lives were places of prayer in this world? What, what would it look like, again, if we were islands of tranquility, an island of prayer, an island of rest, an island of calm amidst the turbulent seas of our culture today? I want that. And sadly, as Leonard Ravenhill was always pointing out in his day, uh, the church has moved from a focus of prayer. And sadly, we are, we, are more, we are more concerned about holiness in the church than we are about sin, was one of Ravenhill's quotes. That, that we're, more, we're, more, sorry, we're, we're more okay with having junk in our pews than prayer in our pews. And that is concerning, especially in the, day, in the culture that we're currently living. But if we are going to, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make our request known to God, and we are going to be places of prayer in this world, do you realize that Jesus is going to zealously, jealously guard your life? And anything in your life that does not belong has to leave. It must be purged because you're supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. So what I want to walk through, I'm going to do it relatively quickly. Looking at Scripture, and there's probably more than 10 but I found 10 distinct things in Scripture that hinder prayer. That when we allow these things in our lives, it hinders our praying. And I want to walk through these. And again, I'll try to do this quickly. But the reason I want to walk through this is just so that the Spirit of God can analyze and, and search and literally go through our life, maybe with a whip of cords, uh, and say, see that? That needs to go. See that? That needs to go. Because if we are believers and we are to be places of prayer, in this world today, then I would personally presume that there should be nothing going on in our life that's going to prohibit that praying. And if Jesus was willing to throw out the money changers and the doves and the ox and the sheep and all the junk so that he can purify a place of prayer, I think he has that same desire in our lives now. So let's just walk through these. Again, there's 10 things that I found. Again, there's maybe more. But 10 things I found in Scripture that hinder prayer. So number one, our praying is born of the flesh. In other words, we're praying from selfish or lustful motives. 
which really goes to the heart of the why are we praying. If we're praying for ourselves, if we're praying selfishly, right, God is not going to heed that prayer. Lord, I need a million dollars. Maybe the real, real reason is why we need a million dollars. I don't think praying for finances is the issue. But if I just want a million dollars so I can get a nice house and a nice car and live in comfort and be pampered, that's a selfish motive. And James 4, 3 tells us, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it upon your passions. Or that word passions, by the way, can be translated pleasure or lusts. So, so here I am and I'm praying, but my whole motive for praying is a self-centered, it's coming out of the carnal reality of my own heart. God will not answer those prayers. And that actually becomes the hindrance to my praying. Uh, number two is not praying in accordance to his will. Uh, in 1 John 5.14, it says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In other words, we must come in alignment with his nature, his will, his purpose, and his plan for what he's wanting to do on planet Earth. And if I pray in alignment with that, though it may take time, in other words, he's not going to instantaneously, you know, make it happen. In other words, that's not the norm, right? So a lot of times we have to pray and we have to travail in prayer for a season. But we must come in alignment with his purpose and his plan, with his will. If we're praying a counter to his will, he does not listen. So you can mumble all the words you want to mumble, but if it's not according to his will, he's not going to hear it. Uh, number three is that we're praying, trying to impress others. So if in our praying, our prayers are so that they can impress other people, God doesn't listen to them. He's like, you already got what you asked for. You're, the people around you are impressed. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So we don't have to have long, elaborate, wordy prayers. We can be simple, concise, and just, Jesus, this is what I need. And yes, he loves to hear my, I'm, I'm reading the scripture here, but I'm pretty sure as a good father, he loves hearing the voice of his children. So this isn't don't pray long prayers. This is, you don't have to just use this babbling word kind of stuff. And of course, if you look at different cultures today, you hear that. You go to certain uh, Hindus or Buddhist religion kind of stuff, and you hear this babbly stuff. We don't have to do that. We actually have a father who listens to our praying. But we're not to do it for show. And again, that doesn't mean don't pray corporately. It just means, hey, your reason for praying should not be to impress the people around us. Why? Because we're praying to one person, Jesus. We're, we're praying to God, not to each other. Uh, number four, another reason why our prayers are ineffective or, or things that hinder our prayer is that we have doubt, we have no faith, or we're wavering and unsure. In other words, when we pray, we must have faith and draw near in confidence. Uh, Matthew 21 verse 22 says, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. 
So how are we going to pray? We have to pray in faith. So if I'm not praying in faith, God's not going to heed that. He's not going to listen to that. James 1, verse 6 or 7. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So if I come to God with a petition and I am doubting, I am like a wave that's just kind of pushed around and I should not expect anything. Which is actually ironic because if I'm doubting God will even do it, I'm not sure he will. He's not going to. I just think that's a funny uh, thought process there. Uh, Hebrews 4 verse 16. Uh, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when we pray, we must pray with confidence, with faith, and we must not doubt. And by the way, the key or the secret behind that is we must know who our God is. And if we know who he is, we can have confidence. If we know who he is, we can actually have faith in his provision uh, and his purpose and his plan. Number five seems, and again, there's no particular order to these, uh, but the fifth one on my list maybe is probably the biggest thing that hinders praying that I've seen in Scripture, and it's when we live in sin and disobedience. If, if we are living in this habitual sin or we're living in disobedience to the Word of God, then it literally becomes a, a, a wall, it's a barrier that hinders our praying. Uh, let me just give you a bunch of verses really quick. In Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, says the Lord. Your hands are full of blood. So, hey, if we are full of junk, God is not going to listen to that. And he gives the conclusion in verse 16 and 17. He says, therefore, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So whatever the junk is in our life, it must be removed so that our prayers are not hindered. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 18 and 19, it says, If I have cherished or regarded iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. But when you get to it, that word cherish or regard means to cling or hold on to. So it's this idea that when I hold on to or when I cherish or or when I uh, cling to iniquity, to sin in our hearts, the Lord will not listen. So we cannot grab a hold of sin. We cannot allow sin to remain in our lives. Proverbs 28 verse 9 if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Hey, when we begin to ignore Scripture and live however we want to, then actually our praying, as oddly as this sounds, is an abomination. That we must hold the Word of God in a very cherished position. And it's not just hearing it like you hear it through your eardrums. It's a hearing it in the sense that you hear it, but it begins to come out of your life, which means it's this idea of obedience that we must hear, heed, obey the word of the Lord. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one 
born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. A few verses later in verse 22 of chapter 3, John says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. So again, our lives are not full of sin and junk. Right? We are coming and walking in obedience to the word and the commands of the Lord. I love what Ravenhill said. He said, a sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. Or John Bunning who said, prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. So it seems like just the tenor of Scripture, one of the biggest things that's going to hinder our praying is when we allow junk in our lives. When we, when we justify the sin and the defeat and the, the, just the, the mire, uh, the mud uh, in our lives, which I actually think says, says something about our modern-day culture in the church. But I'll leave that as a side commentary. Uh, number six, <clears throat> we live with a lack of heavenly honor. In other words, again, it's not just obedience, but it's how we live. And if we don't live accordance to the reality of heaven, it actually hinders our praying. So the lifestyle of heaven needs to become the lifestyle of how we live on earth. Why? We're Christians. We're born from above. We're not from beneath. So you get this idea in 1 Peter 3, 7, talking about husbands and wives stuff. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That how you live with your spouse actually matters. Because if you don't live properly with this heavenly reality, this heavenly honor with your spouse, your prayers will be hindered. Uh, Proverbs 21 verse 13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So when you look at the heavenly realities, God has a heart for the poor, the weak, the needy, the destitute. If I ignore that and I don't live out the realities of heaven here, my prayers will not be listened to. Hey, God wants us to behave a certain way as, as, as marital spouses. If I don't live that certain way, my prayers will be hindered. So again, the lifestyle or the honor of heaven, the reality of heaven needs to be lived here, which we can do because we are filled with the Spirit of God. So the one who is the essence of this whole thing wants to live his life in us. And if we are not living out his heart, his life, his truth, then it says our prayers will be hindered. Uh, number seven, <clears throat> we are not abiding in him. In John 15, seven, it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Which means if we're not abiding, then our prayers will be hindered. Number eight, when we harbor unforgiveness, it becomes a barrier. Mark 11, verse 25, when, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So if, if I'm living with bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart, my praying will be hindered. Which means what? I need God to bring reconciliation, healing, forgiveness between my life and the people around me. Uh, number nine, uh, another reason for why our praying is hindered is that we are praying in our own authority or in our own name. Isn't it interesting that everything that we have is because of Jesus Christ? It is through him. 
Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace, we have reconciliation, we have forgiveness, we have life with God through Jesus. And we have to remember that he is the only way unto the Father, as John 14.6 says. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through me. So if we are expecting to come to the Father in prayer, the only way we can do that is through Jesus. There is no other means. So when we pray then, if we are praying in our own authority, or we're praying in our own name, and again, name is not just a name, right? We don't just, in the name of Jesus, amen. The reason we say that is we're saying, hey, in your authority, in your life, in your character, in your nature, according to your will, this is what we're praying. So anytime I'm praying according to my will, in my nature, in my life, then it actually becomes a hindrance. That if I'm going to pray, I have to pray to him, through him. It's, it's that kind of an idea. Because he is the sole means unto the Father. Uh, Hebrews 7 verse 25, in the same way, says, Consequently, Jesus is able, I love this verse, to save, not just to save, but to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. That he is praying on our behalf, but he is the means. If you want to draw near to God, you must do it through him. Or as John 16 verse 23 says, Jesus, Jesus makes a statement, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So again, it goes back to this idea of praying in accordance to his nature, praying in accordance to his will and not selfishly. But again, this is all through him and to him. And number 10, and it's almost a cheeky one, but another hindrance to our praying is that we just don't pray. Uh, James 4 verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. So if you do not ask, you'll never get. So it seems like a hindrance to our praying is that we're not doing it, which is what we're not doing uh, as, a, as a general statement as a culture. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So we are to be places of prayer in this culture for the world's sake. Not selfishly, but what would it look like if we were an island of tranquility amidst the seas of turmoil? That we were these places of prayer un, unto the purpose of the nations. You realize what that means is anything in our life that does not belong, any, any sin, any, any hindrance, any selfishness, any pride has to go. And Jesus is so faithful. He will make a whip of cords and we'll drive it all out if we're open to him. But hey, if we're crossing our arms and we're gritting our teeth and we're blockading our ears, we will never change. It says in James 5.16, Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let me give you a bunch of different translations. I, I just love that part. Uh, the New King James says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The New Living says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. 
The NIV says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The Christian standard says the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. The New American Standard says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The Net Bible says the prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. The MEV says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The ISV, the International Standard, says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And again, the ESV says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you realize that there is tremendous power in prayer if we are righteous? Again, righteous is this idea of how God is and how we ought to be. Which means, I think, we need to allow God to search our hearts. And if there's anything in our life that does not look like Him, if there's any selfishness, if there's any sin, if there's, if there's any barriers of, in our hearts, then we must let Jesus deal with them through His Spirit so that our prayers will not be hindered. Why? Because in nothing there should be anxiety. In everything there should be prayer. To the point where through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we are to make a request known to God. We are to be places of prayer, which means there should be nothing going on in our life that's going to hinder that. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do want to be places of prayer. And Lord, just as you were zealous and jealous over your house of prayer, Lord, you are just as jealous and zealous over these houses of prayer called believers. Lord, would you, uh, through your Spirit, be so faithful to point out and remove, throw over tables, open up every closet door, anything and everything that does not belong. Lord, don't let us justify sin. Don't, Don't let us just shove it underneath a rug. Lord, I pray that we would allow everything to be exposed and anything in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our motives, our emotions, our actions, our language, our thought processes that is not righteous, that doesn't look like you. Lord, could you bring us to a place of repentance? Lord, Lord, could you cause a stirring within our soul that that yearns to be holy, sanctified vessels for your purpose, for your plan, for your will on this planet. And Lord, we're entering darker and darker days and we need beacons of light who will stand for truth. But Lord, we must not be mixed where we have one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus and we're, we're trying to do this balancing act of doing what we want and yet trying to look like you. Because any time we're trying to do our own thing, Jesus, it's, it's not going to look like you. So Lord, could you come? Would you just move afresh upon us? and Would you bring conviction in any and every area that needs it? And would I pray that we would respond. Lord, that we would find ourselves at the foot of the cross and in repentance ask that you would forgive, cleanse, and Lord, we'd rise up and walk in obedience the life that you have enabled us to even live. Lord, there's no excuse for us not to live out the Christian life because you have given us all things that we need for life and godliness, which is yourself. Lord, don't let there be anything in our lives that hinder prayer. 
Lord, I pray that we would become men and women of prayer whose prayer would be effective, whose prayer would be fervent, whose prayer would change much. That this generation could look back upon these days and find that culture radically shifted. It was turned upside down because of the praying saints who did not care to be noticed except by one. So Lord, whatever is, whatever, is that, whatever is necessary to bring that about, would you do that in our hearts and our minds? Lord, would you purify your church? Lord, would you call your bride back to a place of purity, a place of prayer? Lord, could you cause a, just a stirring within believers around this world to, to not trifle with the things of this world or trifle with the things of the enemy, but to rise up and be men and women of of whom the Spirit of God dwells. Men and women of prayer. Men and women willing to give life and limb limb for the King and the kingdom. In short, Jesus, we need you. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being your temple of whom the Spirit of God dwells. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we can be houses of prayer for all the nations. We love you, Jesus. We just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.